This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. We've got, uh, man... When you when you think sheep hunting, you, you kind of think of this guy and his and his family up north. I've got John Seavers with me here today, and and man, John, I can't wait to actually dig into your history between yourself and your family, and just how long in the areas that you guys have been outfitting up north. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So we are uh, recording this right before Christmas. So have, have you got your Christmas shopping all done? We are pretty much ready. We, uh, Kathy and I live sort of a little remote, so we don't have a lot of stuff to do, but we were planning on traveling to see some family sort of in the, in Southern BC here in the next couple of days. Yeah. So any, anybody that's listening, I met John, Ooh, man, it's actually been, it's been, it's been longer than I think it may have been. Is it six or seven years ago? Um, I hunted, uh, California bighorns with, with John and, and, Took a great one. How long has that been, John? Jeez, Mark. I think it was 2016 when you and Eric were here. Yeah. 2016, 2017. Yeah, six, six years ago. Man, time flies. Time flies. Anyway, I, I was anybody that knows John knows that he runs great outfitters in multiple spots and, and has for, for years. And it didn't take me being in, in camp over there just to realize how organized he was, not just in, in how the camp was set up, but the guides, the pre-scouting, the equipment, everything you want when you're, when you're booking a hunt, he had, he had dialed in. Um, so just always, always stayed in, in contact with John and, and happy to have you on today. Um, John, how did, how did you get started in the outfitting? Oh boy, I'm a second generation outfitter. Mark, my my father was an avid hunter in British Columbia and a guide. And I believe it was the early '80s. He went to the Yukon. He guided in Northern BC for a while, and he would come home and and tell the tales, which always intrigued me. And then in the 
early 80s, he went to the Yukon and started guiding in the Bonnet Plume, which is a, a famous concession mm-hmm. up north. And I think a year or two later, he became a very small minority shareholder in that business. And then a couple of years after that, the, the, the owner wanted out and he had a shareholders meeting and, uh, yeah, next thing we knew we were buying the bonnet plume and that's sort of how things started for me. And at, at that time, what was your, what was your father outfitting for? What species up there? Uh, uh, doll sheep, uh, Alaska, Yukon moose, caribou, grizzly bear, black bear, and wolf. Wow. So when, when he did that, did you guys move up there? Or did you continue to live in BC? We kept a residence in both. We kept one in the territory, um, in Whitehorse and one in the South coast, not, not too far from Vancouver, but an hour outside of Vancouver. So when you were growing up, did you get to help your dad in, in, in the outfitting business? Uh, yeah, there's the, yeah, I lived and breathed it. Yeah, exactly. I actually, I, I went up there, my first year I went up there was, I was 12 years old and just sort of as a kid tagging along on the sheep hunts and that stuff, it was all backpack when we first started. We, we sort of got into the horses a couple of years later or the following year, I believe it was. So sort of just tagged along and, and watched and learned and listened. And then the following year, I believe it was 82 or 83 mark. I actually um, started as a horse wrangler. Okay. So at 13, you started 13 or 14, you were started as a horse wrangler. At 13 years old, I was a horse wrangler. Yes. There was a lot of tears back in the day. And, and I, and I assume you're, you're knowing, knowing the family, your dad, when you started as a horse wrangler, that meant that you were leading, you were helping leading the train in and you were there all the way through season until you got that train of horses out. Uh, absolutely. So he actually, we had some some other wranglers and cowboys hired and uh, right from the catching the horses in July on their summer range to uh, learning how to put shoes on to trucking and trailing in and and trailing out at the end of the season. So you started at 13. What what age did you actually start to guide? So it's it's actually a neat, neat story. At at 16, um, the Yukon government made a provision and they allowed me to have a guide license at 16 years old, as long as I was accompanied by an adult or someone who was 18, was that was the age you needed to be in those days. So at 16, I got a, a guide license, and I believe I was the, and still am, that was the youngest licensed guide ever in Canada. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So the, the, it actually felt that if the, the client that you were guiding was 18 or older, that, that was what gave you the, the green light with your guide license to go. Yeah, I actually, I had to be with another guide at the ah, time. Gotcha. So okay. as, as you know, Mark, the, the Yukon is one-on-one only. There are no two-on-one hunts. Yep. So that gave us the ability to do two-on-two hunts. So if I, as long as I was with an older guide, I was able to b- bring a client along and guide myself. Oh, that's awesome. So how yeah. how long did your father own that that outfitting area there? We stayed in the Yukon until the early nineties, um, and and then we sold that business to an outfitter named Charlie Stricker. Um, some listening might be familiar with Charlie, and then we went to Vancouver Island and uh, set up a concession there on the southern end of Vancouver Island. So was that was that your father that that set up that concession on Vancouver Island? We actually just leased it from from an outfitter, and uh, ironically, that's the one I ended up buying um, when I was around thirty. Okay, and that was your first outfitting area. 
Correct. Yes. That was what we called San Juan River Outfitters on the, on the southern and west side of Vancouver Island. Okay. And was it one, was it one of those things, once you got past the tears of being 13 and, and wrangling horses for 19 and a half hours a day, is it something that you knew, like, this, this is in my blood, this is what I want to do until I can't do it anymore? It's, it's, it's really funny, Mark. As you know, when you spend a lot of time in the bush, and, and probably any guide listening would know that you, you pretty much quit every year. Yep. And then you've had enough, you're fed up, you're tired, you're sore, you're hungry, and then you come home and you've been home for about a week, and then you start just longing for the bush again or the mountains. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it didn't take me long to figure out that this is where my heart was and this is where I wanted to be. Okay. And then, it, I mean, just having that, that experience of, of your father having the area up there and, and which at the time was one of the, one of the toughest areas to outfit in just with how remote it was up in the Yukon. I mean, it's still remote up there, but, but back then I can only imagine, um, that wealth of experience. So then let, let's go through your history. So then, I mean, you've outfitted and still do on, on Vancouver Island. Where, where are other areas that you've had? So, um, yeah, in, we bought that area in the early 2000s, and uh, we sold the Vancouver Island area in 2011, and then we moved to the inside coast. So those of you that are familiar with British Columbia, sort of adjacent to Campbell River, but on the mainland, and we outfitted for grizzly bears and black bears and a handful of Roosevelt elk in those days. And then we moved in 2014 um, we bought what I consider to be the best black bear area in the world on the west coast of Vancouver Island, um, and are still there to this day. How many how many black bear hunters do you take a take a year? You know, it really depends. Our our comfort zone is is thirty to thirty five a year, and okay. historically that that area has been the, the previous outfitter took similar numbers, and we're still that's our sustainable number for for age and quality and we're still producing absolutely fantastic world-class bears every year hey everyone i just want to remind you that we've got some important tag deadlines coming up the wyoming turkey tag deadline is january 20th and the wyoming elk is on january 31st make sure to give the team at wta a call and get applied um okay so in between there I know you've had had different areas, and I always look at John as one of those guys that can read the tea leaves um, because he'll get he'll get an area when it's coming into his into his prime, and and just how areas come and go. Some some may be on a downward trend, especially when you're talking about like California bighorns and how they get ammonia and so forth. Like you always seem to to read the tea leaves. What are other areas that that you've had or or been part of in between? So yeah, in, in 2000, well, in 2000, in the early 2000s, we also outfitted a small area in the East Kootenays, um, like Southeastern British Columbia. That was a, a Rocky Mountain elk in Shiris Moose and Cat area. Um, those of you that, that know me, we're, we were passionate about sheep hunting and cat hunting. So that's sort of stuff that we did back in the day. And then in 2007, we bought this concession where you hunted California bighorn with us, Mark. That is uh, in, in southwestern BC along the Fraser River and uh, just a really unique area, sort of a, a, a different geoclimatic zone, deserty country, cactus, rattlesnakes, um, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, and now we're, we built that area up and, and sold it to one of our longtime guides and we've 
bought another mountain goat area near to where we live. And uh, we bought a, another Shiris moose and cat area in the Okanagan region of British Columbia. So how many, how many cat hunters do you run? Uh, you know what? Four to eight yeah. really is sort of our, our comfort zone. When we talk about big cats for mm-hmm. lions and then, you know, a, a bunch of small cats do now lynx and bobcat are so popular. There's just so many guys that want to hunt the small cats. Yeah. Now, when you say a big mountain lion, explain to everybody that may be listening down in the, the, the lower 48 here of the U.S., what is a big B.C. cat? You know, it's a, a big tom, and it really depends on on how you catch it. If, if you catch a tom that's feeding on a moose kill or an elk or a deer kill, they're going to have 20 pounds excess on them. But typically, a, a big tom will be 150 pounds, Mark, and we've seen them as high as 190 to 200 pounds, which is an absolute just slob just, of a cat. Just a we do get, we do usually get one of those every year. Wow. So you mentioned, you mentioned grizzly earlier on. I gotta, I gotta ask the question. Otherwise all the, all the listeners would be mad. What do you, yeah. what do you, if, if you had to, to look into your magic ball, what do you think the chances are of BC opening a, a grizzly bear hunt up again in the future? Oh, geez. Just a little bit of history in, in 2017, um, as an election promise, our, our government closed grizzly bear hunting. It was a political move market, had nothing to do with science. Um, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's just the state that we're living in now. I don't know. I don't think in Southern BC, those coastal like rain coast, rain, rainforest bears will ever be hunted again. I think you'll see there's a good chance in some of those northern populations where a lot of the First Nations are complaining about moose calf and caribou calf recruitment that we could see some type of hunt coming back. But I certainly wouldn't hold my breath. It's just sort of political suicide for any government that wants to reinstate the hunt. Well, I know just just from being up on the stone sheep hunt this, this past fall, it seemed like everywhere we looked, we were seeing grizzly bears down low. Like, like it, it, was, it, it was truly ridiculous. It, it is ridiculous. And even down, like, we never had uh, grizzly bears on Vancouver Island. And now, just because of the sheer population of, of grizzly bears on the mainland coast, um, they're swimming the channel. And I can't tell you how many bears uh, we have on Vancouver Island, but I know they're becoming a problem um, on Vancouver Island. They're moving in down into parts of greater Vancouver and stuff like that. And we're really starting to see the the adverse effects of the grizzly bears spreading out black bear populations are starting to decline in some areas certainly elk moose caribou calf recruitment is at an all-time low so government admits it was a mistake but again like i said i think it's political suicide for any government to go back on it now wow i hadn't heard that they made it to vancouver island that's uh yeah, that yeah, just shows. I, how, that just shows how the populations, and they're the ultimate predator, right? They're the ultimate predator. There, they do, they do, and go wherever they want. Absolutely, and I just got a report last week of a, what they say is an eight hundred pound bear living on the west coast of, Van, of Vancouver Island near the town of Gold River. Now, I can't confirm that hundred percent, but I know there are a lot of grizzly bears on Vancouver Island now. Wow, I, yeah, that's a that's. That's amazing. I always like to ask people in BC to get their get their opinion and feedback. I'd say that's probably that, that's how, how I generally feel about it too. First Nations may be able to get something done, but I think you you hit the nail on the head. Is it is political suicide for a government to go in and say that they're going to open it back up? Sure. Yeah, and it's it's just it's how they even survey people in, in the cities and all that stuff. Uh, 
we like to say we have two area codes in British Columbia, 604, which is the city, and 250, which is the interior of the province. And we like to say it's a, it's a 604 issue that uh, 250 has no say in the matter, really. No say. We've, we've got very similar to that here in Michigan. It's uh, uh, two different colors. We go red and blue. There's it's yeah. uh, Landmass is very red, but there are a couple of dots of blue that we just can't can't get through. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So of all of all the 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 hunting you do have done, what's your favorite type of hunting? Is it is it cat hunting? Is it sheep hunting? Goat hunting? Moose? Elk? Like what what is it? Oh, uh, I love all hunting, Mark. I, I I have to say, if there's there's one thing that I'm sort of fanatical about, it would be mule deer hunting. I absolutely okay. love mule deer hunting. We we used to have a fantastic product in BC. We're we're sort of because of predation and and things like that. We're sort of at a low in British Columbia. Um, we did have some fantastic hunting back in the nineties and early two thousands, and we still have great numbers of deer. Uh, we're suffering a little bit of quality, but I've hunted Alberta. I've hunted Mexico several times, Colorado. I am still chasing the elusive 200 inch mule deer buck there. You, you got fall in line. There are a lot of us that are still chasing that are still yeah. chasing. What was, uh, I got to ask being a Northern guy, how did you like mule deer hunting down in Mexico? Um, you know what? I, I, I enjoy it. Just the whole culture uh-huh. and the, the whole different style of hunting. I'm not a huge fan of the high rack hunting. Yep. Um, I, I, I realize how, how successful it is and you sort of have to adjust to the terrain similar to, to bear hunting in BC. You got to spend a lot of time in the truck mm-hmm. in a lot of these areas. Um, but, uh, the, the one nice buck that I did kill in Mexico, I actually, was able to get out on foot and a, a guide and I hunted a range, a mountain range one day and we killed a, a real nice 31 inch wide. Doesn't score well, but just a, a beautiful wide desert mule deer. Oh, that's awesome. So looking, looking back, what are, what are some of your favorite experiences as a guide or an outfitter? Like what are, what are the ones that when I ask that question, what instantly pops, pops to your head of, okay, this time 12 years ago or, or whatever. Oh boy. That's, that's a loaded question. I'm um, certainly, <laughs> Certainly as an outfitter, um, just the fantastic people we get to meet and the different cultures and, and stories. Um, that, that's always what I love. There's a lot of great people in this industry. And, and then as a guide, I mean, I can certainly tell you stories all day long about just great trips that we had, successful trips, unsuccessful trips, um, just some funny stories. I mean... Um, I can tell you a couple if you like. Absolutely. Let's dig into them. Sure. Okay. <laughs> what, one that comes to mind, and, and this was in the early days, I think I was around 19 years old. Um, we had a client from Austria. He was a casino manager from a ski village in Austria. And, and back in the days, I believe it was an eight millimeter camera. And he, and he packed this camera around and he was going to film uh, an entire season in the Yukon. And he, he came into camp with a camera. He came into camp about 60 pounds overweight, but he had a sheep tag, a moose tag, caribou, grizzly, black. He had every tag, black bear wolf in his pocket. And he showed up in camp wearing a bright, uh, yellow track suit. And, and we nicknamed him turbo <laughs> and, and turbo was a great man. So my dad actually told me that I was, I was going to spend six weeks with this gentleman. And we were going to backpack. And I just looked at him and I said, we're in trouble. There's absolutely no way this guy's going to be able to, to backpack. But what we did is we 
we got we started August first. We got dropped off at a lake, and we we doll sheep hunted, and then we sort of caribou hunted. We got a grizzly, and six weeks later, um, he had filled every tag, and he had lost about sixty pounds, which was absolutely fantastic. He he was he left there an absolutely changed person, and he invited me to come visit him in February in the Alps and, and being, and when I went back to visit him in February, he'd actually gained every pound back (laughs) mark plus about, plus about 10 more. (laughs) He just never stopped eating once he got out. No, I, you know what it was, and it was great to see him. And then he, and he, he actually, uh, became a lifelong friend and, and came hunting with us several times, Vancouver Island, other places as well. Um, yeah, that, that was one great experience. Another one I can tell you about if we have time. Absolutely. We were, uh, this was probably the early two thousands. We were doll sheep hunting. I went to work when we sold the bonnet plume. I loved the North and I, I stayed working for Chris Widrig. If some of you may know Chris Widrig outfitters, great outfitter. And we were on a, an August doll sheep hunt. And there was another guide and I, and we had a father and son in camp. Uh, father was a heart surgeon, I believe from Washington state and the son was a bodybuilder. And I got, I got stuck with the sun and we, we picked a drainage and we hunted it for about three days and we came back unsuccessful. But when we came back to our, our horse spike camp, um, the other guide and the father had just arrived and they had told us that they had shot a ram, but they didn't have the ram with them. And I guess what had happened is the ram had rolled off the back of the hill to the, to the away from the horses, the drainage that the horses were in. So the father was played out. They went back to camp and the guide said, come with me the next day to go retrieve this ram because there was another ram with him. I said, you know what? That's a great idea. He's a broomed ram. He's Mm -hmm. got good age on him. So we struck off at about five in the morning and we were gone all day. Like I think we, it was about a 24 hour hunt. And those of you that have hunted sheep before, you know, you, you get into these marathons, but we retrieved that other ram. And we got that broomed ram for the young bodybuilder guy. And when we, we rolled into camp at about three in the morning and in that time of year, it's, it's daylight still in the Northern Yukon. And we could not find the dad. Like he had just absolutely disappeared from camp and I'm, I'm starting to panic and I'm, and all of a sudden I hear somebody yelling from about 600 yards up the mountain. Hey, Hey, there's a grizzly bear in camp. And we're like, what the heck? So I, I grabbed, I used to carry a shotgun as my saddle gun mm-hmm. back in the days for, for bears. And I pull up my gun and I'm walking around. I said, there's no bear in camp. Like, what the heck is he talking about? So I, I yelled at him to come down. And when he came off that mountain, Mark, he was stark naked. <laughs> and what what had happened is he had he had gone to the little creek to have a bird bath uh-huh. and, and, and forgot his little mini shampoo and walked back to the tent. And when he came, when he came out of his tent, there was a sow and a cub grizzly in camp and he panicked and he ran up that mountain and that was about 10 o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> he was up there for about 16 hours sh- shivering when he came off that mountain at three in the morning. Oh, that brings up the Seinfeld. I was in the pool. I was in the pool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's an awesome one. So what, yeah. what makes, I mean, I I've hunted, I've been fortunate enough to hunt BC numerous times. What makes British Columbia such an awesome hunting destination? Oh, wow. Uh, Jesus. I, I, I would say that, you know, the, 
we have 14 different geoclimatic zones, Mark, in uh-huh. British Columbia. Everything from temp- temperate rainforest on the west coast of Vancouver Island um, to high desert country, like I said before, cactus and rattlesnakes to the Rockies run right through the province. Uh, we have you know peaks pushing 13,000 feet in BC, alpine, subalpine. We have a little bit of everything. And we up until the grizzly bear closure in 2017, we, I think we have 19 big game species in British Columbia, 17 of which we can hunt uh, with over-the-counter tags as a resident hunter. I mean, that's just unheard of. That is, so say that again, you have 19 of the 29 big game species in British Columbia? Correct. I mean, just, I mean nowhere else even touches comes close to that. That is that no. is that is insane, and that's not counting the 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 bird hunting or the fishing or any of the other stuff that you guys have there. No, we have uh, we have four of the sheep species. Uh, we have California bighorn, Rocky Mountain bighorn, dolls, and stones in British Columbia. The two elk, Roosevelt elk, and Rocky Mountain two moose. Um, four deer species like uh, Sitka blacktails, Columbia blacktails, mule deer, whitetail. Right. Yeah, it's just an unbelievable destination. No, I, I remember the first time I went there, um, I wasn't, I was probably in my, well, I was in my mid twenties. And at that time you had to fill out your license paper form at an office, at an office to get it in person. I just remember getting this, this, this form to fill out with what licenses and, and locking tags and so forth I needed. And just to look at the list, it was like, oh my, like in Michigan, you get a, a deer tag and a turkey tag. And okay. just to pull down this big list, and I'm like, oh my gosh! I just I'll, I'll take them all, even though I'm not there for that. But it's just I, <laughs> I, I, that'll be one of those things that I always remember is just being new to the traveling hunting and and so forth, and and really new to the big game hunting of opening up that to fill out the paperwork and just going, oh my gosh! They literally almost have everything in the world right here. Yeah, it's 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 truly an amazing destination. So as. Uh, being in the industry for, for such a long time at an early age, um, now to, as, as the word I like to say is, is to a a seasoned veteran outfitter. Um, how has it, how has it changed over the years? The, uh, the outfitting, outfitting business, how has it changed from when you got started into it to what it is today? Oh boy. Um, I think first off, what comes to mind is people used to have time. That's what we used to do. We used to 21 day hunts. Um, you know, now it's, it's everything so compact and everybody is so busy and, and we, we would truly go off grid for 21 days. We'd pack up a string of horses and, and be gone. Mm -hmm. Um, nowadays sat phones and and GPSs and in reaches and everything that certainly changed. Uh, What else? Uh, Geez. 600 yards, 700 yards, thousand yard rifles. I mean, those were unheard of in the day. That's, that's certainly moved the goalposts access to the back country. It, it just seems now that everybody's got a river boat or a super cub or so it's certainly there, there's the, the footprint on the landscape has certainly got much larger. And I think another thing that's important would be there's, there seems to be this new, breed of hunter it's it's almost this hardcore elite athlete mm-hmm. um that has sort of entered the picture it's almost trendy now to be a hunter it's we don't see so much guys just out you know for the fun of it with their kid anymore it's the dynamic has certainly changed 
Yeah. No, I would say, I would say that that's a, that's one I hadn't thought about though. In in thinking about it, there there is that trend of uh, like an ultra fit. Like this is the reason I work out and I train so I can go on these 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 tougher mountain hunts. Like that's my that's my sport. That's my goal. That's what I that's what I save my time off for. Yeah, you are spot on 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 that one in that in that trend. The other big one that it is time, and I and I fall in this category too of of man, you got to do it quicker, you got to do it faster, got to got to move on. And it just it's one of those things. Never have time. Like even think about like the sheep hunts that are booked now for twelve or thirteen days. How many yeah. how many guys can actually stay the full length of the hunt versus saying I've got a week or I've got eight days, I got to get out of here on day nine. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody's yeah, got and everybody's got an in reach. Got to be got to be able to got to be able to message home and got to be able to do all that. Sure, it's it's. I was just actually doing some reading here a couple of weeks ago about one of the the areas that we outfit in northern BC, and it was some some writings from the old original outfitters way back in the day, and they they actually said that their their hunts were sixty days long, wow. and. And people think, you know, well, way back in the 40s and 50s, there must have been wildlife everywhere. I don't think much has changed as far as, you know, wildlife on the landscape, but people certainly had much more time and you could actually hunt. You could pass mm-hmm. up rams or, or bulls or billies, whatever it is, and, and look for something. Now, typically, everybody that comes to us says they want a 40-inch ram or a 60-inch moose or whatever it is, but typically they you know, they see one good mature animal and that's, and they're done. Yep. Yep. No, I've I read when I was up there stone sheep hunting this year, I had, I had, uh, was reading, um, some of Fred bears field notes and he had a couple, oh. a couple hunts that he went into BC and it was the same thing. He packed in before season. And, and when he said he would go, he hunted all season. Yeah. I mean, he, he was up there for the, for the full six weeks and, and to read how his, his stories would go of, how they would just load up the horses and go to try to spike out at a new camp. And when they would go to try it, they're not going for two days. They would go and try this for 10 to 12 days or until exactly. their, until their food ran out, then they would have exactly. to go back to the main camp and, and so forth and just explore. But it was a, it was a big part. The, the game numbers that he talked about way back when seemed to fall in line with what the game numbers are now. It's, yeah. it's, it's not like you would just go and hit a, hit a, a new Creek. And all of a sudden there'd be seven bull moose standing on it. It was, it was few and far between on the moose, the sheep, the goats, like everything that he was talking about, it, it seemed to be fall in line with what they are today. Sure. No, you're exactly right. I, I, and I think a big part of that Mark is, is predators. They've, they've been around mm-hmm. forever and, and they sort of set those trends. Um, you know, so having hunted in the North yourself so much, you, you, you can relate that, people come to these places and they think just because it's so, so vast and so remote that there's going to be 50 moose bulls in each drainage. And that's certainly not the case. It's you, you still hunt hard and game is, is truly just in pockets and you find those pockets and take advantage of it. Yep. And being, being an Eastern U S hunter here. So like in Michigan, it's, it's very rare that I get to see 300 to 400 yards just because I'm hunting, hunting timber. And, sure. and all the deer that I see just in that, in, in that short view window. And then you go up and, and I just remember glassing these areas in, in BC and you're like, I can see for miles, 
miles and miles in every direction and you just get up there and you're like man we're gonna we're gonna see some stuff and you just start mm-hmm. glassing and you're like hey, we haven't seen anything it, like there's, there's nothing here but if you go up to that same spot day after day all of a sudden you're like there's a band of rams there's, exactly there's a moose down there like it, it, and they're so good it's it's not around every corner but if you get into that hunt and you get a little lucky on the weather you'll 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 be golden Sure. And, and you know what, that's, that's what I tell people all the time. It's as much as a mental game as it is a physical game. And it's really easy to become disheartened when you sit on a windy cold knob mm-hmm. for, for three days and not see anything. Yep. When you, when, when the highlight of the day is wondering what kind of freeze dried meal you're going to have for dinner and, and getting to en- enjoy that for about 15 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Leopold offers the best optics in the game, bar none. I personally have their Santium binos and never go to the field without their Pro Guide spotting scope. I've got a Mark V on all my rifles, and also don't forget they've got some awesome eyewear as well. For more information, visit Leopold.com. So another question I had on here before we before we dig into the the stone sheep area in BC, being being a uh, an outfitter in Canada, how did COVID affect you? I mean, that, that's one of the questions I've never asked because everybody I've I've had on here has been outfitters in the U.S. and in the U.S. like they were affected a little bit, but truly guys just hopped in their car. They didn't have to fly. There was no border crossing. Um, so the outfitters were affected a little bit, but once, I mean, once that, that first six, eight weeks went by, it was kind of like, okay, business is normal. We didn't have as many clients in a lodge at, at one time and, and we did our best to separate guys out and so forth. But again, it's hunting. So once you got to the field, I mean, everybody was by themselves, but being a Canadian outfitter, how, how did it affect you during COVID? Oh, we went from a hundred miles an hour to zero overnight and and being a uh, bear outfitter on vancouver island our season starts in april so i think it was january right after the sci show when yeah. things they closed borders and uh it was terrible mark I, I don't know how else to say it we like i said we went from flat out to building boats and and getting ready to go and getting camps and lodge ready to to nothing and canadians aren't really known as international we, we have so much hunting opportunity in canada that canadians typically won't travel to hunt so it's not like we had that that pool to to tap into of of resident hunters or canadian hunters so so we went from our business you know running 50 to 60 clients per year to zero for two years mm. um it, it was hard because we had like, like I said, it, we're, we start April 1st on Vancouver Island. So we had invested so much of the deposit money in, into infrastructure and into other things. And then the balances, they just never came for two years. I mean, thank goodness we were established enough that we hang on, but it was hard for a lot of, 
you know, the younger outfitters, new businesses and stuff. Um, yeah, let, let's hope things just stay yeah. as they were, as they were. 2020. And that's a trickle down too. So if you think about it from an outfitter perspective for, for Canadian outfitters, it was truly two years with, with no more income coming in because you were just basically rolling the clients that were booked in 2020 to 2021 and and finding spots in the future and then trying to get them into 22. And then you rolled the second year and knowing you, you've, you had guys already booked for 21 and 22. So you're doing this constant shuffle of just moving guys around but at the same Correct. time, not being able to book anybody else because you had been booked up. So you're just rearranging this with no new, no new money coming in. But then also there's this trickle down effect to, to the guides that are normally in the field guiding for four to six months a year. Like it yeah, just no, you're ab- trickled absolutely. right down to those guys. Yeah. So what, what we did is when we lost the spring of 2020 and the spring uh, and the fall of t- spring of 2020, fall of 2020 and spring of 2021, um, sort of, I just had this conversation with my wife yesterday, actually, it's funny that we're talking about it. It's so what we had to do is all those hunters, all those spring black bear hunters that were booked for 2020. Um, I basically wrote, you know, contacted them all, um, via telephone and said, listen, this, this is tough times. We're going to have to split this over several seasons. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I, I sort of deferred you know, 30% of the hunters into the first year that it opened, which for us was 2022, mm-hmm. um, and then 2023 and 2024. So, um, we still have hunters that booked with us in 2019 that agreed to hunt in 2024, which was, I think wow. the only way we survived is, was to spread that out over several years. Yeah, no. And, and, Generally, what I heard is 99.9% of the hunters understood and, and knew what was going on and were more than willing to help out any way that they, they could just because, I mean, it was tough for everybody. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I was, I was amazed at how patient everybody was. Of course, there's, you know, there's a couple bad actors, mm-hmm. always a group of people that were, were, you know, stinkers that wanted their money back immediately and all that stuff. But we worked through that all and just happy to be back to work and, and going strong. Yeah, no, I, I, and they always talk about, you know, winter, everybody's going to get sick again, but I hope we're, we're way past the days of, of closing the border and so forth. It's, it's nice to be able to travel up to Canada without having to get, get COVID tested and just go in and out as, as smooth as it is the last couple of times I've gone up there. Yes. And, and for anybody listening, all, all the testing requirements and all that stuff, the arrive can app, that they made us download on our phone. That stuff is all gone now. It's it's very easy to travel to Canada for hunting again for any tourism activities. Yeah, and I, I said I'm gonna ask, I, how has the tourism been since they lifted all those? Is it is it getting back to normal? Like not just hunting, but overall tourism. Yeah, it certainly felt like it um, last summer. There was tourists everywhere. I know the hotel bookings and and everything else all the uh, tour operators were at full capacity i think now i think 2023 is still we're going to see the adverse effects of covid with mm-hmm. now inflation and yeah. i mean these just hotels it's just crazy they've they've gone up 30 40% uh, fuel of course is keeping people at home but things seem to be as good as they can be back to normal yeah yeah well, let's let's talk let's talk stone sheep. Let's talk the area up in up in northern BC. What sure. in in your mind? What makes a good or great stone sheep area? 
Oh, I think like, like any species, um, you need proper habitat. You need good summer range. You need good winter range. Um, you know, escape areas from predators, all that kind of stuff. South facing slopes, um, you know, hi- historical numbers certainly would, would play into it heavy. You got to go into areas where the sheep live. We always say, you know, this is going back to our time conversation. You have to have enough time for a hunt. You have mm-hmm. to be in the right area and you have to be patient. Yep. And, and been on numerous sheep hunts in my life. I'm fortunate to do that. The one thing that you can never count on is the weather ever. Absolutely. Even, even if yep. you always say, well, I'm going on the first hunt cause the weather's going to be good. And then all of a sudden it rains and fogs you in for four or five days in a row. And you're like, well, that, that didn't work out. No, yeah. that's actually, I, w- I was on a, a doll sheep hunt in the Yukon two years ago and it was a 14 day hunt. And we, we actually hunted for about 24 hours total in 14 days. Oh, just one of those doozies. And that's the one to where you read the little book that you brought with yourself seven times over the course of the course of the time. Ab- of the tent. Ab- absolutely. I, I got to know my guide real well. Yep. Looking, looking for any, anything with wording that you can read. That's when you're reading tags on sleeping bags and clothes and I've had a lot of, a lot of those days. So for, for everybody listening, explain the difference between a summer range and a winter range for sheep. Sure. So, um, sheep typically migrate much like mule deer and elk. They'll, they'll be on those, those high, they're, they're always chasing the best quality food. Mm -hmm. So summertime as things green up, when spring comes in, those sheep typically come from their winter range. They'll migrate to their summer range. Um, you know, chasing quality grasses and stuff like that. And that's where those sheep will be. You can actually, in most areas that I'm familiar with, if, if you see a band of rams on a mountain in one year, like in 2005, those, those same sheep will be there on, in that, on that same mountain in those historic ranges. And then of course, as, as snow starts to fly and all that, they'll move off those high landscapes down into winter areas like south facing windblown stuff um just basic survival really Mm -hmm. so what so say you get an area that's got a that's got a a great population of of stone sheep that's been sustainable year after year what then affects the populations in that area the most is it weather predators all the above all of the above and, and management, you know, from, from the hunting perspective mm-hmm. as well. It's, we're always looking for the oldest, most mature rams. Um, it's, it's frustrating for a lot of people to, you know, turn up a, a legal ram, mm-hmm. but not all legal rams are of the right age where we consider them harvestable. Yep. Yep. And so as, uh, as we kind of dig into the, some of these more, more of these questions, obviously on, on one of the things I, I, never do with any of the outfitters that I have on is talk specific areas and even more so when you're talking, talking sheep hunting. Um, so any any of the stuff that I dig into moving forward here, it's, it's not going to be specific mountain ranges, areas of BC. That's why you kind of hear us say Northern BC a lot. Um, but for the, for, for John's area, BC adventures here, we're going to kind of dig into how you operate your hunts, what, what guys can expect, um, and so forth for, for the hunts in your area, is it, is it backpack? How do you, how do you get guys in and out? In wild country, 
rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. So currently we're backpack and horseback and um, small, small aircraft, super, cu- mm-hmm. super cub aircraft. Um, really, really both. We, we can sort of cater to anybody. Um, we're trying to move away from the horses for, for a whole host of reasons, reasons and, and strictly stick to airplane and backpack stuff. Um, unfortunately, that, that really moves the goalposts for a lot of clients mm-hmm that just aren't physically or mentally prepared enough to do a backpack hunt. But, uh, you know, I, I always tell people it's as much as a, a mental game as it is a physical game. Yep. If you can get, if you can get those legs moving left in front of the right, right in front of the left, and then eventually you'll, you'll catch yourself doing things that you never thought you could on the mountain. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you can survive the first two, three days as you climatize, um, you know, that, that's half the battle. I I've looked at a lot of hunters, you know, we had, we had a, a hunter last year, actually, he was, uh, a high level football player in the U S and, uh, when, when he came, it's just, I just wasn't sure he did. And he killed a fantastic ram, but it, it doesn't really matter how physical you are. If you're, if your head's not in the game, if yep. you really, it's as, it's as much mental as it is physical. And then, Another thing with horses too, people book horseback hunts thinking that the horses are going to take them to the sheep. Well, that's simply not the case. It's, um, you know, the horses are great from getting to where you need to start hunting, but you, you still have to hunt once you leave the horses behind. Yep. Exactly. And, and truly, so I, I love coming off a mountain to a horse, (laughs) but the whole process of taking care of a horse on a hunt is, it's kind of a pain. So if you can if you can get to the point to where you can go on a backpack hunt and do it, <laughs> I find you actually spend a lot more time hunting that way than 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 having a horse. Now don't get me wrong, it's it's nice taking a horse so you don't have to walk three miles into the area before you start hunting and, and having that horse if you're coming off the mountain heavy. Yeah. But think about that. You're, you, you got a long hunt. You, you always got to make sure that those horses are taken care of. So there's a, there's a lot that goes in, into that. Um, mm-hmm. me personally, like I, I, at least now while my, my knock on wood here, my knees are still good. I, I love a backpack hunt. When, uh, when you look at hunters for sheep, like what does a, what does a potential sheep hunter or sheep hunter need to be prepared for? Oh, Everything that we spoke about, I, I can actually talk to a guy on the phone and, and get a pretty good handle if he's if he's the right candidate or not, just by the questions he's asking. But, you know, if, if you're on a horseback hunt, I, I would certainly, you can't just show up in camp having never ridden a horse mm-hmm. and expect to spend 16 hours in the saddle one day or two or three days just to get where you're going um, without 
feeling it. I mean, it's, it's brutal. I, I would strongly recommend to anybody on a horseback hunt to do as much pre-trip, you know, kind of spend some time around the horses. Just mm-hmm. horses are like dogs. They pick up on negative energy. Um, so spend some time around the horse, learn how to walk around a horse and, and be with horses, learn how to mount and dismount, spend as much time, you know, maybe start with an hour and then do some half day rides, do some full day rides at a local stable or something. But the more time you can spend preparing yourself, the better off you'll be. And it's the same mark as, you know, physical conditioning yep. for a sheep. Mm-hmm. There's not a piece of exercise equipment built that duplicates a 40 mile an hour wind rain storm on the side of a mountain cold hungry and wet no no while having a heavy backpack and moving on slippery rock to slippery rock and not having seen an animal in for several days yep and living on freeze-dried meals for seven days yeah we call them sodium sodium bombs that's 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 about what they are i tell you what some of the new ones now though they are pretty good like and it's, it's, it's funny how after seven days you, you get to where you're looking forward to them and, and then you enjoy them. Um, yeah. But then it's also to that point to where you, you mentioned earlier in your story about the, the guy gaining the 60 pounds back plus probably an extra 10. To watch mm-hmm. guys after they get off a sheep hunt to the first restaurant that they pull into is, is an impressive sight. Like normally, nope. the eyes are always so much bigger than the stomach because what nobody realizes is that your stomach has shrunk over the the course of that hunt. So what they order to start with is always so impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, a, a funny story. Just this past August, um, one of the guides in the hunter came off an epic backpack hunt. They did. I think they put seventy kilometers. Um, we dropped them off with the plane at one spot and and they actually hiked almost all the way back to base camp where we could pick them up again but uh when those boys came back into camp i thought i'd made enough food for about 40 people <laughs> uh, i have never seen two men eat so much i think they actually ate a hind quarter of sheep just themselves <laughs> and then and then probably slept for about 16 hours absolutely yep. yes all right so on on to the um the mountain goat in your area so obviously, yeah. I mean the 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 stone sheep. It's it's such a special area. Great rams, great numbers, but not only great numbers. I mean, just the right age classes to get some truly magnificent big stone sheep out of there. And the mm-hmm. same is the same is true for the mountain goats in your area, right? You know what? Absolutely. It's uh, you know I I'll, I'll say it cautiously, but I think we have some of the, that region of of British Columbia where we operate certainly holds the the highest densities of mountain goats in the world and absolutely fantastic genetics. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Seeing some of the, some of the goats that were taken out of there last year was, was amazing. Now what Mm -hmm. is the preparation difference? So I know on your stone sheep hunts, you've, you've got some that the mountain goat are on as, as a trophy fee, but then you also book just a mountain goat hunt by itself. Now, for a guy that's booking that mountain goat hunt for themselves, how how does he need to be prepared going into that hunt versus if it's somebody going on a sheep hunt? You, you know what? Very similar. Um, I can't say enough to physical conditioning. It's the difference between stone sheep and mountain goat is certainly where we operate is we're going to see mountain goat nearly every day. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to be good, respectable, harvestable billies every day. It's the terrain where those goats live. It can be so steep and so, and so rough that it's, it's not uncommon for us to sit on a billy for four, five, six, seven days at a time 
we know which animal we want, but mm-hmm. we just can't get to him safely, uh, kill him and retrieve him. So a lot of it is, is sort of sitting back and watching that animal going, okay, you know what? He's moving. If he, if he makes it to that avalanche shoot, we can approach, we can harvest and we can retrieve and get off the mountain safely. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating as heck. Whereas sheep hunting, as you know, you spend a lot, there's a lot of boot leather being worn just looking at country, you you can glass a range and not see something. It's not uncommon to hike 15, 20 kilometers a day mm-hmm. when you're hunting sheep. Not the case with goats in our area. We're actually looking at goats. We have great populations. We're looking at a lot of goats. It's just putting that goat in a spot where we can get him safely. Yeah. And what, uh, another good question you always probably get asked, what are the, what are your normal shot distances for sheep and, and mountain goats? You know, that that's a great question, Mark. It's, Uh, Now with these, with these long distance rifles, I always tell people practice as long as you can comfortably. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon nowadays on these sheep and goat hunts to, to shoot 500 yards. If, if, if you can tell me that you're comfortable shooting 500 yard and then I'll watch you at the range and all that stuff, it sure makes our life a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. Now what if, what if you get somebody that's got a headache like me that brings a muzzleloader up there? Um, I tell them to book with their outfitter. No, <laughs> no again, it's, uh, it's just that patience game. You know what? We're, yeah. we're going to get this done. We just can't go burning up the mountain and, and then up and down five times. We just got to be smart about it. We got to pick our battles wisely. Yep. Yep. Um, now let's talk, let's talk moose in the area. Um, sure. I mean, you've got some great moose. These are these are the Western Canadian moose. Like, what what's what's the average hunt like? What what size moose are you are you targeting? You know what? It's it's a September hunt, so wet weather's changing. Um, we do a lot of uh, lake and boat, like jet boat, river boat mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know, typical Canadian moose um, in the fifties. Like, I think yep. last year our smallest moose was 53 inches and our biggest was 59 um again mark as you know hunting the north it's pockets you're not going to see 30 bulls a day uh we're gonna we're gonna hunt we're gonna set up spend lots of time glassing you know get to those high vantage points and and look for a good five six seven eight year old bull that typically in our area will be mid mid 50s and that's a, that's a great Western Canadian moose too, by the way, for anybody listening that doesn't know. It is. And, and, and truly a great experience. I'm, I'm sure most people have watched, you know, videos on sportsman channel of those river boats and calling and all that stuff. And that's, that's absolutely what we do. It's lots of calling. Um, it's not, it is a physical hunt, like for all hunting, mountain mm-hmm. hunting, you should be in good shape, but it's not nearly like a stone sheep hunt or a goat hunt and all that. You can actually spend some time relaxing, get that camp experience and, and have a great time looking at a lot of wildlife. Mind you, you're still glassing the hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's wolf opportunity. There's black bear opportunity on our moose hunts. There's some fishing stuff. So it's, it's truly a great experience. Now explain. So the first moose hunt I went on was a do-it-yourself moose hunt in Alaska. So I really, at a, at a, as a younger a younger guy, I was, I was trying to think back. I was 23 or 24 when I went up there with my dad, having no idea what to do. And every other type of hunt that I'd gone out west for or something like that, it was, okay, I'm moving, I'm glassing, I'm moving, I'm glassing, I'm moving, I'm glassing. <laughs> That's not moose hunting. I quickly I quickly found that out. It's not moving and glassing. It's a, it's a lot of waiting, a, yes. lot of, a lot of calling. 
Um, it's just, it's just different. Like explain that to somebody that hasn't moose hunted or, or doesn't have that experience. Like what makes, why is that such a successful way to hunt moose? Well, what we always say in the rut is when we hunt the moose, you hunt, hunt the cows. Yep. It, it's, it's much like hunting whitetails. I would imagine, um, you know, in, in the Midwest, if you know, you've got healthy doe populations, you know, a buck's going to show up yep. eventually mm-hmm. and, and you just have to be patient. Typically what happens, people are impatient and they put too much boots on the ground and they sent up the whole country. And if if you can just have the patience to sit tight where the cows are, the bulls will turn up. It's just a matter of time. Um, That rut typically always happens. You know, if I could bracket it, I would say it would be, you know, September 7th to 30th. If, If you've got the patience, just sit and you will get your bull. No, and that, and it, for, for a hunter that hasn't done it, that that's, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to go and do that. But to actually do it in the, in the field where it's one of those guys coming from, come from Michigan, like me. And I was like, man, I just want to peek over the next hill. I just sure. want to check out the next drainage. And then all of a sudden you realize you've gone four miles and completely kind of, as you said, sent it up that whole area there. And if you have to think about this, this isn't like a whitetail hunt here in the, in the States to where they're, they, Smell cars, people, houses, dogs, any kind That's of right. pet, uh, farm tractors, all that stuff. These moose don't smell people because there there are no people. There are no roads. It's one of those places like northern BC. Yes, occasionally you'll hear a plane fly by. And you and you can hear an individual plane fly by. And you're like, well, that's the that's the plane from Vancouver up to Whitehorse. And no one know what plane that is. It's not like here in Michigan where you go outside and there's so much other noise that goes on. And in, in the sky, I can probably catch at any given time five to ten planes if I sit out sure. there for, for ten minutes. It's just that, that silence and everything carries so much. No, you're absolutely right. And what we always say, too, is when you're moose hunting, the work starts after you pull the trigger. Oh, I've so, seen so many people make the mistake of, of just walking and walking and then shooting a moose five six miles oh. from your as you know mark if a moose is a pile of work that, if, if you shoot a moose six miles from camp you, you might as well dedicate about four or five days of your life getting it out so on that moose hunt that's what i did i shot a moose that oh. was three miles away from camp with a river crossing Oh, perfect. And I will, I can guarantee those are one of those things. I always like to say you, uh, you learn from life lessons. I completely yep. learned from that. I am not straying anywhere that I, that is too far away on a moose hunt. I don't know nope. how many pounds I lost in the two and a half days that it took to move that moose back, but it was a lot. Yeah. First and last time, right? Yep. Exactly. Yep. I was so excited. And then about the second load in, I was like, man, this is, I was not smart at all. This was a really, really bad decision. It happens all the time. And, and unfortunately, um, people that just aren't prepared for it, really, it, it can go sideways quick. Yeah. Yeah. So what, when, when, as an outfitter, what are you looking for in guides for these types of hunts? Cause these aren't, these aren't like a normal, uh, outfitted hunt here in the States to where you're in a, in a pickup, moving a guy to a stand or out or a little bit of glassing, but using, using the pickup. Like on the stone sheep hunt and the goats hunt, and even the mo- even the moose hunt may be a little more camp based, but like on on the stone sheep hunt, I mean it's just you and your guide for That's for, right. for twelve days. 
I mean, think about that. That's that's food. That's that's staying alive. It's keeping the tent ready. It's going to the right area. It's glassing. It's it's sizing. It's so much. Like, what do you look at when 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 you look for the right guides? Oh boy, you're 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 really looking for the full package. You know, it's I get so many guys that reach out to me looking for guiding jobs, and and the first thing they do is they they tell me of their hunting accomplishments, mm-hmm. and what we always say is. A great hunter doesn't always make a great guide. I mean, it, it certainly helps, but it's it's only one part of becoming a full rounded guide. As you know, Mark, you've spent so much time in the field. It's you're a psychologist. Yep. You're a you're a doctor. You're a you're a companion to that person. It's it's a mental game as as much as for the client as it is for the guide. And and I can give you an example. We we had a young man um this past summer that came up and you know super fit just a great guy uh-huh. and when he when he arrived in base camp I, I talked to one of my lead guides and i said you know what i said he's not going to make it and and my guide said no sure look how how enthusiastic and keen and his equipment and all that stuff and i just said he just doesn't have it mentally and sure enough he, he lasted one hunt um and he was out so it's it's someone that you'd want to go into the trenches with, yep. I guess, Mark. Somebody that you you know has the the skill set of the hunting, the survival. Um, someone that can communicate properly. Communication is such a huge part of what we do, mm-hmm. um, especially if you get you know a CEO of a company that dreams of of getting a grand slam, and he's never been on a sheep hunt, and and he's used to telling people where to go and what to do and how to get there, and then you team them up, you put them on a lousy wet hillside with, with a guide that, that guide better be able to, to hold up exactly. under that prep. Yeah. Cause that guy, that, that hunter has been used to, to having not necessarily his way, but having things run through him. Sure. His whole life. And now, yeah. now he's on the hill to where he has no control basically. And it, and it's just there. And, and yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's all right. The guides up in the North, I mean, they are everything. They're cooked, they're doctor, they're, they're shrink. You, you, I mean, that is a hundred percent correct. Sure. And you, you have to be able to withstand the pressure because we're under an immense mm-hmm. amount of, um, to be successful. Um, and as you know, just it can survival is, is a big thing just in this part. Of the world. Now we certainly have all the latest best gear, but, um, when things break down mentally on the side of a hill, which they can, and, and things go sideways, a plane can't come for a week and you're, you're low on food. It's mm-hmm. you, you have to be prepared for everything that's thrown at you. Yeah. No, that's great. And, let, and you kind of brought up gear here when, when, when you're talking to, to guys looking to book a sheep hunt, moose hunt, uh, mountain goat hunt, I, I imagine they have to ask questions on gear. Like what, what's, sure. what gear do they, they really need to bring and, and what's like, what do you recommend for, for boots and so forth? Oh, but can I name names and all that stuff? Absolutely. Cause yeah, you can name, you can name names. Um, you know what? So it's, it's, it's basically the full on the, the best of the gear that we've had the best success with would be like Sitka you good absolute quality rain gear mm-hmm. and the rain gear nowadays it's it's not even just rain gear it's actually this this the the clothes that you wear are waterproof and and boots like mendel or mm-hmm. or you know just good a good mountain boot and please do not come with brand new boots 
I, you know, I hear that so many times, um, especially from Northern Outfitters, which which just it, it blows my mind. But guys showing up there in camp with new boots that they have never worn or mm-hmm. literally worn maybe one to five times. Yes. Like, like just and to me, like I before I even I even I've kind of got this break in break in pattern with me. Like before, especially before I go on a on a mountain hunt, like I want those things feeling like tennis shoes on my feet. But mm-hmm. like I, I only wear them for like I start with an hour, then build it up for two, and this is my, and then I start in my house, like before they're even sure. dirty, just wear them in the house, break them in a little bit, then I'll start when I when I take my my hunting dogs on a walk, start mm-hmm. for an hour outside, two hours, yeah, three hours. Now now they're starting to get broke in a little bit, but still like even here in Michigan, they're not doing the bending and so forth that you will on a, on a, on a mountain hunt. So before, so before I bring a pair of boots on a mountain hunt, I actually wear them on other hunts before that. Like you should see, I've got, I've got literally pairs of boots kind of broken apart by this one's ready to go on a mountain hunt. This one's on its last fringes. Can't go on a mountain hunt. These ones are in the break-in period to where they're ready to go on a, on a, on a truck type hunt to where you're going to get out and you're going to walk a little bit. They're going to go through some cactus or something like that. That's going to scratch them up, give them that feel and break them in a little bit more. No, absolutely. And I, I tell people too, wear them wet. Oh yeah. Um, walk, walk through a Creek, get soaking wet feet and, and wear them for six hours. And it's, we see it so often, so many people invest so much money in one of these hunts and then they, they, they want to cheap out when it comes. Cause they think, well, I'll only wear it once. Mm-hmm. Or uh, we've, we've actually even had people, Cabela's used to have a program years ago where you could return it after 21 days or whatever, if you didn't like it, we had people show up in camp with brand new gear, um, still in bags with tags on it and then returned it after the hunt. I think I actually just grew a blister on my foot listening to that right now. <laughs> yeah, just, no. just, just hearing that the blister appeared and it's, it's already got the bubble to be popped. And, and no kid. And you know how uncomfortable it is trying to do a, a stone sheep or a goat hunt or even a moose hunt with, with blisters on your feet. Oh. You just can't do it. So, you know, I, I tell everybody invest in the gear, including the guns and the pack and everything and use it just like what you do, Mark, just Mm -hmm. absolutely spend as much time trying to duplicate what you think you're going to be up against side hill. People never think of side hill and we spend half of our time walking in the mountains is side hill. And it's, it's absolutely brutal. It'll, it'll wipe your feet out if you're not used to it. Well, you said, like, I just remember the last time I was up there last fall is, man, man, we're side hilling on my left foot. I just really just want to switch and just side hill on my right foot. Just yeah, walk, back, walk just, backwards. Yeah, just, and then all of a sudden you get to walk back and you're like, okay, now my right foot hurts. Now I just wish I could side hill on my left. Yes. Yeah. No, man, no, the it, geek, it's something the special geek. about by the time it all wraps up and it's over though. Yes, that's right. Successful. Like on this one, I wasn't successful in the fall, but it was one of those I can't wait to get back the the experience like I like now that it's been gone just some of the mornings to where you'd wake up and it was a good morning day to where you just unzipped your tent and you could just lay in there for 10 minutes and just That's right. just look outside and you're like how many people have actually ever camped here and had this view you think a hundred mm-hmm. like to me I'm like do I has there been a hundred people in the in the history of mankind that have actually camped here and woke up and, and looked up this valley and saw the snow on, on the peaks and just take that in. Yeah, exactly. And probably a hundred would be a large number. I'll yeah. tell you a funny story. 
real quick. Um, this is back in the Yukon hunting doll sheep. And we had, we had gone to one of the, the farthest This is when for Woodward outfitters. And, uh, we, we had hiked in and I, I had a, gr- a client who was in great shape and, and he could go. And we went as far as I thought anybody had ever been. And we climbed up to the top and we were looking at a ram bedded below in a couple hundred yards away. And, and we had agreed that when this ram stood up, we were going to we were going to harvest it. And I looked beside me, Mark, and there was an old empty 270 casing <laughs> sitting there. And it's it goes back to what we talked about earlier about historic ranges and yeah. where those sheep live. But somebody that, that shell was probably 50 years old, but somebody had been in that exact same spot doing the same thing we were doing. It was pretty neat. Tell me you took the shell casing with you. We did. Yes. Yeah, had to. yeah. That'd be one that would go right, right on my, on my desk or my bar. So when I would stare at that, it would bring back that memory. We did harvest that ram and that hunter took that home and he was going to sort of make it part of his, his full mount base. He was going to put that shell on the stone somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. That makes it, that makes it even better. Yeah, it was great. Well, I know you got spring season around the corner, so you get to enjoy some time with, with the family around the holidays and then it's going to be go time for you again. It is. We're, we're actually just getting geared up to do the shows. Um, mm-hmm. we're going to be at SCI, um, we're going to be in Dallas and we're going to be in Salt Lake. So that that's next, probably my least favorite part oh, yeah. of this industry, but um, kind of a necessary evil. So we're doing that. And then we come home in March and then we get in the shop and we start going through bikes and boats and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, late March, we're on the water getting ready for bears. Yeah. Well, if you guys are looking for for some great hunting options up north, make sure to check out John again, SCI Dallas, and and then the Western Expo in, in uh, Salt Lake, or check them out. I, I mean, it, as you guys can tell from listening to this, extremely professional, and it's one of those things when you go with an outfitter, you can instantly tell the guys that have it dialed from the beginning to the end all the gear, all the transportation, any of the questions, John's got it all all taken care of one top notch for sure. So John, thanks for thanks for joining today and and what we need to do is after your spring season, we need to do one of these again and just have a recap of how your spring season went before you before you get into the field in the fall. Sure, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yep. No. Nope. Well, thanks again, John. Thank you, Mark. Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.